0: A couple of weeks ago, we began this this study uh, that I've called the Imago Dei. And if you're not familiar what that means, it's just a word that just simply means image of God. It's a Latin expression that refers to the image of God. And so we've been looking at this particular subject and really sort of a starting place so that we can launch into a couple of other uh, issues that are really pertinent uh, to what's been going on in society. You know, there's a lot of, you know, uh, change that we've witnessed in our culture, a lot of conversation on the issue of gender and transgenderism and um, artificial intelligence and all that kind of stuff. And so people ask the question, how should Christians respond and how should we understand uh, these particular uh, debates and ongoing discussions? what's good? I think that's really the issue. We want to know what's good in a world filled with all kinds of confusion and in particular you think about the sexual confusion that's manifested itself in our society. Uh, What with various technologies and the potential of those technologies, gender theory, we, we ask the question what is good and what should we advocate and stand for as the people of God? That is How should we understand all of this in terms of God's character, what God's revealed in His Word? And so I would say that ultimately, how has what we've seen thus far, based upon what we know from Scripture, that we've been created in the image of God, that Latin expression Imago Dei uh, comes right from Genesis 1 and those verses which are so foundational to the Christian worldview especially as it relates to our understanding of humanity and what it means to be human. Uh, How does that really apply to all of the issues that are really at the forefront of humanity right now at this moment in the world? And so that's what I really want to begin diving into in our time tonight. Now, obviously, we won't do sort of a deep dive or an exhaustive uh, treatment of all of these issues, but I do want to just sort of maybe approach it from a surface level perspective, just to give you some things to think about. And hopefully we'll get us thinking about what the Bible says about humanity and how that really impacts and affects the way that we think about all of these issues. All right, so um, April 24th, 2015. Roughly eight and a half years ago, Olympic gold medalist Bruce Jenner revealed to the world that he identifies as transgender. In an interview with Diane Sawyer for the the program 2020, Jenner made this claim, and I quote, that God gave him the soul of a female. And then he boldly asserted, I am a woman. You fast forward to June the 1st of that same year, and Jenner announced via Twitter that he is now Caitlyn Jenner and said, I'm so happy after such a long struggle to be living my true self. Welcome to the world, Caitlin. Can't wait for you to get to know her. Well, on the very same day that his social media account made that announcement, uh, Vanity Fair magazine released its July 2015 edition with Jenner provocatively dressed as Caitlin on the cover. Some of you may have remembered that. You perhaps saw that uh, in, in the news. A few weeks later, Jenner received the Arthur Ashe Award at the ESPY Awards in Los Angeles. And he received the award wearing a white Versace gown. And here's what he said in his acceptance speech. I trained hard. I competed hard. And for that, people respected me. But this transition has been harder on me than anything I could imagine, and that's the case for so many others besides me. For that reason alone, transgendered people deserve something vital. They deserve your respect. Well, Jenner went on to advocate on behalf of transgender children, uh, those who were bullied, those who perhaps even have considered suicide, Jenner then went on to have facial feminization surgery, breast augmentation surgery and had been taking female hormones for some time and in 2017 underwent complete sex reassignment surgery. Now, all that sort of just played itself out in real time, you know, via the media, via social media and and, and, and is a really high profile case of what has seemingly taken our society by storm over the last several years. But the case of Caitlyn Jenner really illustrates key, uh, several key themes that are sort of uh, ongoing and common in these discussions. And, and J. Allen Branch points this out. Uh, he says that, number one, embracing transgender identity should be celebrated according to these cultural discussions. Number two, God is actually behind one's transgender identity because, again, you go back to what um, Bruce Jenner reveals to the world, that God gave him the soul of a female. That's not just simply a claim. That's a theological claim. We would even say it's an ontological claim. That word just simply means reality, the nature of being. We're hearing that kind of thing all the time. Number three, people claim to have a female soul trapped in a male body or a male soul trapped in a female body. Number four, if you love children, you will agree with the innovative stance regarding transgenderism. And so now you have even those that are advocating for uh, hormone blocking and uh, surgeries even for children which is nothing short of child abuse. Number five, it's a noble and brave thing to go through extensive surgery to transform one's gender appearance. And then number six, this theme, such an experience is liberating. And so commenting on his own transition, Jenner said this, Bruce always had to tell a lie. He was always living that lie. Every day he always had a secret, from morning till night. Caitlin doesn't have any secrets. I'm finally free. Now again, I'll just say all of that to just sort of set up our discussion you know, tonight, that that's a high-profile case of, of transgenderism, but it's, it represents so much of what you hear even now in the media, perhaps what some of you are even dealing with involving uh, family members, conversations with coworkers, and so all of that demands really that we as the church have a well thought out biblical response again how do we think about such issues uh, as it relates to this this topic of the imago Day? how can we even begin having a conversation with our culture that just seems to be rushing headlong into What you and I would look at as being chaos, confusion, and insanity. So over the past couple of Wednesday nights, we've considered what it means when the Bible says that humanity is made in the image of God. And so that expression, Imago Dei, and what it means, this has really been our starting place for understanding what it means to be human. Okay, and so that's just a shorthanded way of, of, of referring to this wonderful theological truth that God has made us uniquely in his image, and we've looked at what all of that involves, okay? But the definition of what it means to be human, from a biblical standpoint, a human being is a man or a woman personally made by God, in the image of God, all for the glory of God. And so that's our definition. This is what scripture teaches And as the creator uh, and the designer of our humanity, God has given us our purpose. His word reveals how he intends for humanity created in his image to, to function and to flourish. And all of that's the wonderful picture that we're given in the first two chapters of the Bible. Now, obviously, we look around at society and we consider our own experience in the world and we know that that's That's not necessarily been our experience because the world as we know it is filled with brokenness and confusion. And there are an abundance of lies that people buy into thinking that those lies are somehow going to lead them into freedom and liberation. Why else would anybody subscribe to transgender ideology? Because it's about an identity. It's a quest for some type of purpose, some type of meaning. Uh, you know, some type of explanation behind the the, the the purpose for which I exist in the world and that kind of thing. So, we've got a much better story to tell the world as as those who uh, know Jesus. And so, um, due to the fall and due to the consequences of the fall, there's now been a departure from God's good design so that now we live in a broken world as broken men and women. And that's true of all of us. It's not just simply true among those who represent you know, the leading advocates and proponents of the transgender movement, but that's true of all of us, folks. You know, there's a, there's a song I hear on Christian radio, I, I like it. I think it's by Danny Gokey, We All Need Jesus. You know, you're familiar with the song? That's the truth. There's not a single one of us in the room that have not experienced, you know, the, the, the devastating consequences of sin in our own lives, in our own families. And that brokenness often manifests itself in our own hearts in different ways. So where, is, where does all of this ultimately come from? Well, it goes back to Genesis chapter 3, which is foundational for a Christian understanding of the world and what's wrong. And so, you, you think about the sexual confusion then that manifests itself in our culture. You and I might be tempted to assume that we're living in unique days. Now, there is some sense in which that's true, but sexual sin and, and the confusion that is um, a product of that, it's been characteristic of our fallen humanity going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. There's nothing new under the sun. But there are some new things that we're having to grapple with. Now you have technology to aid people in their particular quest, you know, to change their biological sex. And so all of that is, we're going to cover that really tonight and a little bit later on. And I want you to take your Bible and I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in the New Testament. Because sometimes I think we forget that many of the churches that are represented by these epistles written by the Apostle Paul and other others in the New Testament, these represent churches in cities and, and cultures that were very much like ours in, in, in many ways. In a pre-Christian society, in the Roman Empire, where you had just sort of a plethora of ideas and idolatry and uh, pagan sexual ideas and practices. You consider a place like Corinth itself during the days in which the, 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 the letter to the Corinthian church is written, um, it was a time and place known for rampant sexual immorality, chaotic confusion. It was a, really a corrupt place, so much so that to be Corinthian, to be described as being Corinthian was sort of an insult in, in that particular time. It was viewed as sort of being a, a, just, a, I mean, just a vile person. So it was a culture where anything went. And they used their bodies however they desired. So isn't it just like God to reach into a culture and place like that and save a people for himself? so that he can showcase his glory and then use them as being witnesses to that surrounding culture, which, by the way, in in a lot of ways, the culture ended up influencing the Corinthian church because there's no letter that's any more stern in the New Testament than, than 1 Corinthians. Paul absolutely has a fit with the Corinthian church because, I mean, let's just face it, they're living in the belly of the beast, but God speaks into their situation. And so I want you to notice what he has to say there in verse, um, really beginning in verse number 9 of this sixth chapter. Now just a little bit of context, the first part of the chapter opens up as Paul is dealing with this issue of, of believers dragging their fellow believers into the courts and, you know, turning to unbelievers to try to settle their legal disputes. And so Paul says, look, you ought to be different as the church. You're going to be able to work things out as believers and to not bring your disputes and your division you know, before those who are not even believers because it's a really poor testimony. So he's dealing with that in the first several verses of chapter 6. Now look at what he says beginning in verse 9. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Now notice he just goes down the line and he mentions a variety of, of, of ways of living and sinful uh, practices. He says, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkards nor revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. So Paul's saying, when the gospel came to you, you were in bondage to many of these very same sins. This is your testimony. This is your background. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. So he's saying, God really did something in your life. He changed you. He radically saved you. And then notice he says in verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Now this was an expression perhaps that they were using to try to justify their loose living. To try to justify some of the immorality that they were tolerating uh, within the context of the church. All things are lawful for me. But Paul says not everything's helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Now, that was another expression, sort of a tongue-in-cheek expression that they were using. Uh, They'd sort of bought into this idea, which was so characteristic of the culture, Greco-Roman culture that, that viewed this, they had this dualistic understanding of the body and the soul that basically said what was really important was the soul. It didn't matter necessarily what you did with the body. So, as long as you were saved, as long as things were good between you and God, it necessarily didn't matter what you did with your body. You could live any way that you want to because the body is evil. The body is corrupt. The soul is going to be freed upon death. And so that led to a very real way of living that is unchristian to the core, unbiblical to the core. And so Paul is dealing with that here. Food is meant for the stomach, the stomach meant for food. God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. So he's saying, You Corinthians need to understand that your body is not for the purpose of, of sexual immorality. Your body is not yours to do with whatever you so. It's not my body, my choice, according to the biblical understanding. The body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. So, two very important things right there. The body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now, have you thought of yourself in those terms? Your body, now you know there's more to you than your body. But you're not simply a soul with a body, you're an embodied soul. That's the biblical teaching. Now we ain't got time to get into all this, but some you know theological arguments you know is man a dichotomy or a trichotomy is he body and soul or is he body soul and spirit because there are certain places in the new testament it seems like there's a distinction made between the soul and the spirit other places you see that those terms are used interchangeably and so it says well pastor what do you believe (laughs) i've kind of been in both camps you know in in my in my journey I do believe that there's something special about the soul that has a spiritual capacity to know God. God's created us in that way. And that a person that doesn't know Christ, they're spiritually dead. They still have a soul. Physically, they're alive. But spiritually, they're dead to God. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 teaches. When you get saved, you're regenerated. You're brought to life And the life of God takes up residence within you so that spiritually you are alive to God. If you know Christ tonight, you're alive to God. Isn't that wonderful to know that you're alive? And So what the world around us is desperately trying to find via transgender ideology and and everything else, the world's trying to find the life that only comes through knowledge of God. That only comes through knowing Jesus as your Savior. So... You've got a body, a soul, slash spirit. But your body is important, according to what Paul is saying here, because the Lord is for your body. You know that God cares about you and all of you? He cares about you physically. He cares about you emotionally. He cares about you spiritually. He cares about you relationally. Everything that God intends for you to be as someone who's been made in his image, God deeply cares for you. And he's got a, a will and a purpose and a design for your life. And that includes a plan for your body. Now, the fall has taken its toll out on us physically, has it not? <laughs> I got up from my chair this afternoon to make, I was gonna go into Christie's office and say something. And I mean, I, I, my knees were popping and I kind of stumbled out of my chair and I thought, man. It gets, yeah, it's all downhill from here, I guess. Thank God he's got a plan for our bodies. You know? What is the plan that God has in mind for your body? Perfection. He's going to give you a resurrection body patterned after the Lord's own body. And, you know, it will be free from any defect, it'll be free from any uh, pain. No more cancer. One day they're not going to be, we're not going to be wrestling with, with desires that war against our soul. And that's the plan that God has in mind for you and for your body. So he want, Paul wants the Corinthian church to understand this. Now he goes on and says there in verse 14, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it's written, the two will become one flesh. So he's talking about sexual immorality here. But he who's joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Now, here's the practical instruction. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now think about the implications of that. Every person who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. What's the wages of sin, men and women? Death. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now that's the scriptural context. Now I am going to move away from that and I'm going to just give you a little bit of insight into the ongoing tr- conversation about transgenderism and then we'll make our way back to this passage at least in a part two of, of, of our our topic. So transgenderism then is advocated and it's not by coincidence that it's advocated in a culture that's already normalized and and subsequently celebrates all types of sexual immorality. It's yet one more step in a downward spiral of a society that's really rejected the true knowledge of God. Again, Paul outlines this in Romans chapter 1. Because people reject the knowledge of God and they, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness, God gives them over to a reprobate mind and then the consequences of those disastrous choices. And so you think about where we are in this particular cultural moment. Think about our society in general, what type of society we are. We're a technologically advanced society. Uh, We are a materially prosperous society. And we are a selfishly narcissistic society. So much so that we believe that we can create our own reality. Having rejected knowledge of God. And so it's not then, uh, this, th- th- these transgender ideas and ideologies have not just appeared out of nowhere. No, they, they are ideas that our unbelieving culture have turned to and now gladly embrace. And so we've really had a front row seat to this in society here in the West in the wake of the sexual revolution. Uh, Dr. Albert Moeller, he is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. And a leader in SBC Life. But he says that the Church of Jesus Christ faces an unprecedented challenge. It's what he calls the collision between it and a new sexual ethic. A collision between revelation and revolution. Now think about it, this represents revelation. Revelation. What we understand about humanity, what we understand about the body, what we understand about our origin, our purpose, our design, our dignity, all of that, that's only known by means of divine revelation. God has revealed to us who we are and, and why we matter. And we understand ourselves only in the light of the knowledge of God, the creator who's made us. Well, having rejected that revelation, the only thing left really is revolution. And so the revolution then is a sexual one. one, And it demands a complete reordering of society and civilization. Mulder goes on and says, Indeed, this revolution questions a fundamental grounding of what it means to be human. Even male and female. The sexual revolution usurps the very source and ground of human identity right down to whether or not our creation determines in any sense who we are as humanity. Moreover, this revolution rejects the revelation of God in His creation mandate the goodness with which He designed sex, maleness, and femaleness. So, we might assume that all that we're witnessing in our culture sort of exploded onto the scene out of nowhere, but that's not the case. Because the groundwork For where we are currently, it's been laid over several succeeding generations. And so that's why I think it's important that we sort of, you know, spend some time tonight with a brief overview of of the history of the sexual revolution and how it sort of has brought us to where we currently are. Okay, so um, understanding the history then of the sexual revolution. This becomes very important. Now, I want to just read a little bit to you tonight uh, from Dr. Moller's book. And if you want to pick this up, he deals with a variety of issues, but it's called The Gathering Storm. And he deals with secularism and the way that that's really impacted our culture and how we as the church, you know, can really respond. Okay, but uh, in a particular uh, chapter, he deals with uh, the gathering storm over gender, I thought it was very helpful because he sort of gives a snapshot, brief history and overview of the sexual revolution that really was launched in the 1960s. And someone says, Well, when did it really all begin? Well, much of the sexual revolution began when scientists developed technology aimed at liberating human sexuality from reproduction, aka the advent of the pill. Now, we're not going to debate the ethics of contraception and that kind of thing. That's not the purpose of this tonight. But you can't help but see that this opened up sort of um, Pandora's box in many ways with the way that people used their bodies and, and the sexual practices that they gave themselves to, and rampant vice and immorality simply because no longer was there the threat of pregnancy. And so the advent of the pill, I think it was somewhere around 1960. It's not incidental or coincidental that the decade and decades that followed, I mean, you've just seen um, a variety of different lifestyles and behaviors that began to be normalized and even emphasized. All right, now, not long after the introduction of the pill, The US Supreme Court legalized abortion across the nation in 1973. Oh and by the way, pornography really began to go mainstream in the late 60's also. For pornographic material, there was just a proliferation of pornography that began flooding our society. It was always there in back alleys and you know, dark corners of our society, but it really began to go mainstream in the late 60s. And then 1973, you have, you have Roe v. Wade. And so if the pill then separated sex and procreation, abortion separated pregnancy and responsibility. And so then that gave rise to just sort of this, this perfect storm of what people chose to do, how they chose to live their life Uh, Along those same lines, you had those that were advocating for same-sex relationships. Though attempts had been made to legalize same-sex relationships prior to 1969, uh, you had something known as the Stonewall Riots that really marked a pivotal turning point for the gay rights movement. Uh, The wee hours of the morning, June 28, 1969. The police in New York City's Greenwich Village, they raided a, a... a bar which was known to be a hangout for those in the homosexual community. It was known as the the Stonewall Inn. What made history, though, Moeller says, was the protest that followed. Though the attempts had been made to legalize same-sex relationships, prior to that, the Stonewall riots marked a pivotal turning point for the gay rights movement. He actually quotes an author uh, from the New York Times who reflected on The movement as an entirety and and said that one of the most important achievements of the Stonewall uprising was that it began a radical redefinition of the character of the LGBT person in the popular imagination. In 1969 homosexuality was still defined as a mental illness by the medical profession and same-sex relations were a crime in 49 states. The uprising showed the world a new image of our community. We were no longer willing to hide in closets and silence and shame. We would take to the streets, demand to be full citizens. Within months, several activist groups like the Gay Liberation Front, and so on and so forth, they were formed. So in other words, the Stonewall Riots added gas to an already smoldering flame. The protest moved the gay rights movement into the public arena. A year after the Stonewall riots, New York City had its first gay pride parade with other cities following suit. And so those parades now, they're a staple in American public life. The article in the New York Times uh, went on to say, today, the building that houses the Stonewall Inn has earned a listing in the National Register of Historic Places. Homosexuality has been decriminalized nationwide, lesbians, gay men bisexuals they're able to serve openly in the military there's federal hate crime protection and AIDS has become a chronic illness as opposed to a fatal one we have marriage equality and this was written in 2020 He says that a gay man is now making a serious run for the presidency referring to um, uh, the mayor of South Bend Indiana Pete uh, Buttigieg that was running for presidency some years ago now all of that's just stuff that just happened in the wake of the sexual revolution. And, and, and it goes on. It doesn't stop. But the sexual revolution demands not only equality, but also the suppression of divergent worldviews, namely the Christian worldview. Now listen to this. Stonewall really was the beginning, the, only the beginning. Any moral code that denies the new sexual rights must be silenced. For in... Kaufman, who is writing in the New York Times, in his words, the worldview is nothing more than the vestige of an authoritarian system of oppression. Which leading advocates of LGBT issues, we hear this kind of language all the time. You hear these kinds of interviews in the media, the news, you see their opinion pieces that are written in uh, periodicals and newspapers and that kind of thing, conversations that you have with people, even those that are running for national office and political office, often talk about the repressive, suppressive restraint that the, Christian, the Judeo-Christian worldview has in terms of culture and sexual ethics. So, so, the history then of the sexual revolution just shows that Pandora's box was opened and folks, listen, it's not over. And the transgender movement really is just one, it represents one train car in a train of cars that are barreling down the tracks. So that more than any other part of the sexual revolution, the transgender movement represents even an attempt to redefine humanity itself, not just human sexuality. Now that's just understanding a brief history of it. Now this is where it gets a little bit weird, I'll be honest, I I heard a lot of these terms and terminology, conversations I've had with people, you've heard this perhaps in conversations you've had with people, if you've listened to the news those of us who subscribe to a Judeo-Christian worldview, when it comes to this issue of gender and sexuality, all right, we understand gender and sex to mean one thing, where now in secular culture, those words have taken on different meanings and there are different definitions. So where there's a lot of debate and a lot of heat and a lot of friction between those who hold to the worldview you and I hold versus those in culture who hold you know, to the secular worldview, advocating for some of these ideas. We're using a lot of the same words, but we have radically different definitions. Now, what, what do you think happens in a society when people use the same language, but they have totally different definitions for those, those words that they use? It, it, it's, it's a recipe for confusion. And that's where a lot of us are. So, Jay Allen Branch, in his little book, Affirming God's Image, this is, this is another uh, little book that I've, I've promoted. A couple weeks ago, I, I mentioned this one. This is another helpful book where he deals with uh, the transgender question, and he is a professor of Christian ethics at Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City. But he's got a chapter on terminology and vocabulary. And you say, okay, well, what's the big deal here? Well, we've got to think like missionaries as Christian men and women. Because folks, let's just be honest, those in culture are not our enemies that we're retreating from. We want to reach people for Christ, don't we? And so like never before, we in the church, we've got to begin thinking like missionaries to our own culture that desperately needs Jesus. Now think about people who are caught up in so much of these ideas thinking that they're going to be able to find some form of meaning and purpose because the transgender movement, let's just be honest, it is, it's writing a check that's going to bounce. And that's the way it always is with any, any idol that Satan tries to pass off on humanity, who buy into it, who, who, who worship it, who try to make it the very center of their being. It, it, it can't hold water. It's bankrupt. Jesus said, if you're, if you're tired and weary, you come to me, all of you who labor and heavy laden. Jesus said, I'll give you the rest that your soul longs for. All right, so what then is, is, are some of the, the definitions? Vocabulary. Let me just give this to you quickly, okay? And, you know, you can take it or leave it, but I won't belabor the point. Now, according to secular culture, Now, you see these definitions. These definitions don't represent my definitions. So don't you take this, photocopy it, and pass it out to folks and say, look what my pastor says he now believes. That is absolutely not true. This represents a lot of the definitions of those who are are using this type of terminology who are fully embracing the transgender movement. All right, so sex this particular word. What's the difference between sex and gender according to those who are transgender advocates? Well the word sex is used in reference to biological and anatomy traits such as obvious physical differences among men and women. So they would say well there's a difference between sex and gender whereas you and I see sex and gender as being synonyms. Right? That's why we would say there really are only two genders And yet, advocates of the LGBT movement, and in particular the transgender movement, will say, no, there are 102 genders. Which, by the way, those categories keep expanding by the day. It's like trying to change a flat tire on a car that's moving. You just can't do it. But they would make this distinction and say, well, sex is used to who a person is biologically. But gender, on the other hand... This is used to describe the subjective psychological, the social, the cultural aspects of being male or female. So along this line of logic, someone says, well, biologically I am this, but psychologically I feel, again, you see this with the illustration of Bruce Caitlin Jenner, where biologically Bruce Jenner's sex is male, but psychologically. See what I'm saying? He, he feels female. And so now we're living in a time where, where subjective feelings overrule objective facts to where now you, de- you get to determine reality based on how you feel. Now folks, that is a, that is a very dangerous place to be. And then transgender, this is an umbrella term for persons whose gender identity or expression does not conform to that typically associated with the sex to which they were assigned at birth. I'm going to give you some of these, because again, you're hearing these in the news. What does it mean to be a trans woman or a trans man, transsexualism? Well, this is a transgender person who believes he or she was born in the wrong body. And they transition via medical intervention to the opposite gender. Again, I come back to the illustration with, uh, with Bruce Caitlyn Jenner. Cisgender. That's a term that you see now being thrown around. What does that mean? Well, it means that there's a match between a person's birth sex and the gender they feel themselves to be. So, cisgender would be, if you're, if you're a man and you're confident in your maleness, then by these definitions, you're cisgender. Or if you're a female, you're a woman, and you're confident, a confident woman, you're cisgender. All right, what about this? Non-binary, those that reject the traditional binary of male and female, this describes those who identify as genders that don't fall into the category of male or female. Now, this is where it gets... Whew. And oftentimes, a person who will identify as non-binary will want you to refer to them in plural pronou- pronouns. They, them. So, when you see someone advocating that, they know that they're identifying as non-binary. You say, Pastor, what do you really believe is behind a lot of this? Well, I'll be honest. I, I believe in the Bible, and the Bible is the, our authority for faith and practice. And the only people in Scripture that spoke in plural terms had issues with demons. Don't think for one second that this is not demonic ideology. That people are being blinded by the evil one. That's why you need to Pray. You need to pray for your children. You need to pray for your grandchildren. You need to pray for our nation. Because the enemy is working overtime in these days. And then gender dysphoria. This, this is a term that's it's defined as a clinical diagnosis for the experience of distress among people who have this marked incongruence between the gender they were assigned at birth versus their experience. Now prior to this terminology it was known as, uh, as as gender identity disorder. But I think it was the American, I think it's the American Psychological Association or one of those that that they sort of quit using that term and, and went with gender dysphoria because it felt like it was really an inhumane way to refer to those that that had very real issues and struggle. By the way, this is a very real issue with people. And so this is where you and I, we need to think as compassionate Christians who are motivated by gospel truth. That there are men and women who, who wrestle profoundly with these issues. Now you say, well, why is that? Well, again, it goes back to what we know about our human condition, folks. All of us wrestle with disordered desire at some level. And often that, that manifests itself differently in, 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 in some versus others, but disordered desire, it's really a consequence of the fall. And the New Testament would categorize these you know, as lusts. That would be the New Testament word. And as, as Christians who understand you know, you know, the authority of Scripture and what discipleship demands, we recognize that there are certain desires that we've got to put to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. Which means even if you become a Christian, that doesn't necessarily mean that you quit wrestling with certain desires. But we're living in a culture now that says what you need to do is celebrate those desires and build your identity around those desires. And the message of salvation and the message of Jesus is, no, pick up your cross daily and follow me. What do you think picking up a cross implies? Crucifixion of self. And, and so it really, I think, at issue here, deeper than anything else, could we say that transgenderism involves the sin of envy? Wanting something, perhaps, that someone else has that you don't necessarily have, but you think that it's going to make you happy. It's going to bring you the life that you think that it can. And so again, it goes all the way back to the issues then of the heart, doesn't it? So we've got a unique opportunity as the church of the living God to be able to point people to the hope that we have in Jesus, who alone is the author of life. And yeah, we've got these messed up, disordered desires in these broken bodies because of sin, you know what sin does? Sin, sin really makes us, it doesn't make us more human, it makes us less human. But you know, Jesus is in the business of redeeming us, and changing us, and conforming us into his glorious image. And so that's where this passage in First Corinthians chapter 6, I think, is going to be so very, very helpful. And I'm going to stop here tonight, but let me just leave you with this last point, understanding the theology of the Bible. Having said something really about the history of the sexual revolution, knowing a little bit about the vocabulary of secular culture, where do we land, you know, understanding the theology of the Bible? And I'll get into this, we'll come back to this, but that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us that our body has been created by God for His glory and our good. Again, remember, God is for the body, And the body is for him. But our body has been corrupted by sin and its damaging effects. That's true of me, it's true of you, it's true of everybody in the world. But the beauty of the gospel is that our body has been claimed by the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul could tell the Corinthians you're not your own, you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Even if you feel certain things, even if there are certain desires resident within you, glorify God with your body. Surrender that to Christ because you belong to Him. And ultimately, our body has been commanded with purpose according to the divine design. And what is that purpose? It's to glorify God. To glorify God with our body. Now, I know that's a lot tonight, and I have really scratched the surface. I hope you're not confused, you know. But if it can help you really understand where people in our culture are. You know, I think we need to be students of the Word. And you know something? I think being faithful Christians requires us to be students of our culture, too. And so that's what we hope to do. Let's stand as we pray tonight. Maybe as you're standing there with your head bowed and your eyes closed, maybe there's somebody that the Lord will bring to your mind. Maybe the name of someone. Maybe a family member. Maybe a co-worker. A neighbor. Someone that you know that perhaps has bought into the ideas of a secular culture. Someone that desperately... Is is hurting, wrestling with issues of their own identity. Maybe they've confided in you as a friend. Would you just pray right now for that person as the Lord brings that person's name to your mind? Lord, as your people. In many ways, Lord, we, we feel like we're in Babylon. And in some ways, Lord, we might think that things have sort of changed overnight. We know that that's not the case because there have been decisions made and decades gone by that have had consequences because ideas always have consequences. But Lord, your word is truth. And Jesus, you said that if we build our house upon culture and the ideas of culture, it's like building a house upon shifting sand. But when we build our house upon the bedrock of your truth, Lord, it's solid ground. And we pray for our nation, we pray for our culture, we pray for our families, for our children. And Lord, there never has been um, an easier way for certain ideas to be rapidly spread than in today's technologically savvy generation. And so, Lord, may we be discerning men and women of faith. God, may we think like missionaries and recognize some of the lingo that is being used and some of the vocabulary by the culture. Lord, we have such a better story to be able to share. The hope that we have in Jesus and the gospel and the success. Where is identity found? It's found in you and in you alone, Lord who you've declared us to be what you've done for us in the person of your son Jesus what you're doing now and the plan that you even have for our future for our bodies future resurrection oh Lord what a wonderful hope this is and so God I pray in Jesus name for those in our midst Lord that may have deep deep wounds and scars All of us, to some degree, have those wounds and scars. But, Lord, I'm just so thankful for the redeeming power of your gospel. And so, Lord, thank you for our time together tonight. Go with us as we go our separate ways and go back out into the world. May we be salt, may we be light, all for your sake. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 Amen.